0: Now, I'm going to tell you a little story to kick off our show this morning. uh, The alarm went off and I rolled over and I looked at the electric clock and I thought, oh, crikey, time to get out of bed. And then I dragged my sorry backside out into the kitchen, uh, made a cup of coffee, uh, put the breakfast on, went and had a shower. And uh, then I ate breakfast, hopped on my bicycle and rode in here to the studio to meet our guests. Now, what's the point of that story? The point is that every step of that process, I needed energy, energy to get myself uh, rolling over in the bed, a chemical energy, of course, in my body, the electrical energy in the clock, the electrical energy in boiling the kettle, uh, cooking my oats, uh, heating the hot water, and also delivering all of those products to my breakfast table so I could eat them in the first place. And that indeed is the theme of our show because I'm very pleased to have an expert in uh, energy and some big picture questions. Uh, Dr Bjorn uh, Sternberg is a Senior Research Fellow at the ANU Battery Storage and Grid Integration School. So uh, good morning, Bjorn. Good morning, Rod. And uh, now energy, as I've uh, just uh, described in my... A little story now. Uh, it's absolutely fundamental to our civilization, and it's largely the invisible worker that does stuff. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to pick up on that?
1: Yeah, I think the the thing that fascinates me and got me interested in energy is that yes, it's ubiquitous and, and drives most things that we do in our modern society. Now, but also it's now is undergoing such a rapid transition, such a large amount of change. And those two things are related as well in the sense that the reason that um, we are undergoing such a transition in the energy system is because the energy system is the largest source of carbon emissions, thereby the largest um, driver of catastrophic climate change. And so that's the the obvious and most important place for us to focus our efforts to address climate change. We need to decarbonise the energy system as a priority. Um, and that then is leading to just the greatest uh, multitude of interesting challenges um, for the energy system, um, and that's kind of what I'm interested in and am a part of.
0: Well, our, our listener, of course, is uh, probably well, well familiar with the climate challenge, but you mentioned the energy transition, and that's a really, really tough thing to be doing. But uh, before the show, you mentioned some other Really big energy transitions that have happened in history. So it's not the first time that uh, our civilization has had to do this kind of thing.
1: No, ex- exactly, and I, I see that. I, I brought that up because to me that's a reference point of that while what the exact transition that we're currently in is unprecedented and we have many choices, which I think we'll talk about on the show, um, of where exactly we take it, what exactly happens. So while this transition is unique in its own ways, generally going through a total transition or transformation of how a society uses and en- accesses and uses energy, that's something that human Have done multiple times over the last millennia. Um, And so I think that's a real point of hope and optimism and confidence. I think that this is doing energy transitions is something that can be done, it has been done, and we'll do it this time. Do you want to Um, um, give some examples of some of the other transitions? Yeah, the the last two that come to mind is that the whales, of course, were very happy when we moved away from whale oil as um, a key source of energy and moved across to petroleum, and now petroleum's gotten us into this trouble which is uh, of climate change and and carbon emissions. Um, And so now the transition is from kind of a fossil fuel more broadly, uh, petroleum as well as gas and coal transition to. Um, I haven't got a word for for what we're using now. It's really that we're just going directly to electricity, um, and we're getting that electricity largely from solar and wind as the kind of primary sources for that. Um, and so we're going from a, it's. I guess it's a renewable um, well, energy system. W- would you
0: a, say that we're moving away from burning stuff to using electricity?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. I think there's. Um, Kind of describing or talking about specific technologies kind of I think misses the point, um, which is where I was a bit kind of caught there because I think the, like you say the key thing is that you know, yeah, we're not digging up any we 're not digging up a different thing or going and killing a different animal to get our energy we're now going to kind of direct it 's quite a direct process to electricity.
0: So it's, it's a disruption of the way we currently do business, right? And so do you want to sort of talk about uh, why that is such a challenging
1: thing? Yeah, I think the, there are a lot of technological challenges, which is kind of part of what I do in my day-to-day work. Uh, but I think overall it's less of a technology challenge and much more of a human challenge, um, which again is why I like to bring up these previous transitions to, I think, give us just the confidence that we as humans can do this we have done this and we'll do it fine this time um, with the caveat that it is a unique situation that we're in now it is a unique transition that we're in and that we've as humans face a, a great great multitude of different opportunities and different choices that we can make so i think that's really the the um, bit that i'm interested in at the moment is just that getting across the message that that we have choices. None of this is predetermined. We're not kind of following a script or a recipe. We have choices, and they're for you and I and for everyone else individually as humans to contribute to making those choices. So
0: there are opportunities. It's not just
1: uh, a negative thing. Yeah, I mean, first of all, flipping it from a negative thing to opportunities, to a positive thing, but also that those opportunities are plural and that the kind of consequence of that, it's like, it's great, it's positive opportunities, opportunities are wonderful, but you also have to choose between your opportunities, which means there are trade-offs. We can't simultaneously be having everything. We we can have almost anything, but we can't have everything. Um, And so we need to choose what path we want to go down and what we want to prioritize. Well,
0: you've you've used the word choose just now, and I, I should mention to our listener that you have a book. Uh, do, which has yeah. the word choice in the title. Tell, tell
1: me about that book. It ha- yeah, it has the, the book's called Amy's Balancing Act. Um, oh, sorry, I mis- misquoted that guy. Yeah, all right, it's a similar theme. Um, and it tries to pick up a lot of what we were just discussing, kind of the opportunities, the positivity, um, and the really human elements of the transition. So the book is a, a you know, fiction, um, and it's written for children, as Craig Rucastle said at the at the launch, it's written for young children and old politicians. It's written <laughs> under the, the previous federal regime. Um, and it really tries to get at the human elements of this. It does describe in an allegorical sense kind of how different technologies work, solar, wind, sto- energy storage, lots of what we'll be talking about today. Not in nitty-gritty details, but in kind of conceptual that we need the sun for solar, you need wind for so wind wh- power. So
0: what is uh, Amy
1: balancing then? So Amy in the book is um, a young girl and she is the postwoman of an island called Energia, um, to give you a hint of what the allegories or uh, the fable is about. Um, and she is balancing multiple things, actually. She, she's a postwoman and she learns to balance the male across a team of different helpers. So she begins the story being bound to just using a horse who she's worked with for decades. The, the horse is called Clyde. It's a very slow-moving, big kind of beast. And that beast has been great for Amy, um, much like coal and gas-fired power have been great for humans for decades as well. But the horse and coal-fired power stations are getting old and need to be retired. And so in a hot summer day, the horse collapses And that's the trigger then for Amy to have to learn to work with a new team of native animals with whom then she needs to balance the male across. But there's another kind of um, meaning of the word balance. Um, It's balancing the the male across different helpers, Um, but it's also that Amy needs to balance the... Demands and expectations placed on her, the people of the island of Energia expect the energy. They expect, much like you, Rod, for your kettle to work in the morning, kind of first go, not to have to wait a couple hours until the electricity turns on. So they expect reliable electricity, but they also now expect it to be more environmentally sustainable. Clyde, the horse, has really torn up the island um, created lots of dust kind of dirtying everything so how does amy you know the protagonist and the hero of the story balance these demands these competing demands for clean electricity or in her case for you know, a cleaner postal system um but still a very reliable one um and so that is the other part of you know oh, so balancing. it's uh,
0: it's an allegory as much as anything yeah uh, and a metaphor perhaps for our time for the choices that we now have
1: yeah, correct. And uh, and for the, the really human nature of this transition that Amy, the biggest challenge that she faces is just dealing with change. She's very, very used to working with the horse. It's an entirely new proposition to her to work with these new helpers, a guana an albatross and a glider. Um, and yeah, it's just an emotional kind of hurdle and, and challenge for her to rise to.
0: So it's changing her thinking as much as so she's changing at one level. She's changing the technology, i.e., the horse. Yep. Uh, and, but she's accepting a new way of, of approaching her life or her situation.
1: A- ab- absolutely. And then for myself as the author, there was another way in which balancing was the theme of this, and that I was really trying to find a way. And I, on this point, at least, I'm very happy with the, the outcome. Um, of balancing being respectful to coal and gas and fossil fuels and what they 've done for humanity over the last few decades, but balancing that with being clear eyed about the fact that they are old, need to be retired and you now cannot be kind of part of a clean system going forward that is decarbonized, so trying to find a way of of balancing that i didn 't want to fall into kind of or extend the climate wars I really was after a way of bringing, having a, a neat children's book, a fable that kind of can be a soothing element to that climate so war, it so is, here's is, something we can all agree on.
0: Yes, it's something that uh, is less uh, threatening perhaps and I'm thinking of that because I, I think in the back of your mind, or maybe probably the front of your mind, you're thinking of people whose businesses are uh, work around the old technologies, and there's the workers in the coal mining areas and so on, and they're feeling threatened by the changes, and so somehow they they need to see a future for themselves. They do, and I think
1: we as a society owe, I think we owe them a lot. Like, they have been keeping our lights on for decades, and I think it's really unhelpful to slip into kind of denigrating or kind of speaking negatively about that. We want to say that was absolutely, like, fantastic and a great kind of underpinning to the lives that we have all lived. Mm -hmm. So let's be very respectful for that but also clear-eyed about the fact that we need to move off fossil fuels to address the climate catastrophe. So let's find a way of doing that. We have the technology, technological solutions for doing so, um, but we also need to bring those communities um, and those individuals along.
0: Well, here on uh, Fuzzy Logic X, we're talking to our guest, uh, Dr Bjorn Sternberg, uh, who's a Senior Research Fellow into Energy-Related Things at the ANU, author of Amy's Balancing Act. Uh, which sounds like a good read. Uh, I would love to have a look at it, uh, Bjorn. Now, Bjorn, uh, in our conversation before the music break there, you said that, uh, which is pretty obvious, I guess, when you want to go and uh, press the microwave oven, you hope that the thing will work, you actually got electricity coming into your house. Right. So reliability is one thing that we really, really want <laughs> Uh, yeah. Can you sort of take us through some of the other requirements of a successful energy system
1: yeah the the real core one which we can extend out from from reliability um, is that electricity is a, a service or a um, let 's say a service that is in operates in real time so the the absolute fundamental thing to any power system, be it um, in your home, if you live off grids in uh, the ACT in the eastern seaboard where we have a grid that runs from Port Douglas to Port Arthur and across to Port Augusta, one of the largest uh, grids out there. Or in, if you're in Alice Springs or if you're in WA, wherever you live, wherever you get electricity, the electricity that you are consuming, that you are using, is being somehow created um, in that exact same instance. So for a power grid, we talk about supply having be, having to be equal to demand. They um, often refer to that as the golden rule of a power system. Now, and so we need to always be having exactly the, exactly the same, no more, and also no less, electricity being... Produced, being somehow generated or discharged at the time that we are using. Is that uh, challenging
0: because the demand varies quite a lot?
1: Absolutely. No one can predict when you're going to hit the the kettle or the light switch or the microwave Mm. or start plugging your electric vehicle or hit the air conditioner or or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So absolutely, we have a huge amount of variability in how we use electricity. And we've built our power systems generally in a way that we expect that variability We connect a lot of people together, which then reduces that variability because we don't all hit the kettle at the same time. so it averages across? It kind of averages out. It still varies, but it averages it out nicely. Um, And then we have kind of adapted the way that we provide electricity in a way that it follows the variability of um, demand. Now that... Kind of, which sometimes you'll hear um, in the media talk of kind of dispatchable electricity, um, which is the types of electricity now largely kind of fossils or energy storage. Um, where you can turn it up and down to follow that demand, so, so it's it 's responsive it 's responsive yeah right um, and that's the part of the, the the essence of the energy transition is that that 's changing and we 're now getting more variability in how we generate our electricity as well, because now we have a lot of power coming from solar and wind. Um, which are variable. They Some days are more sunny than others. Some days are more windy than others. Obviously, the sun sets in the evening. Um, and so that's an extra source of variability that we need to manage. Now, So now we need to manage and make sure that variable generation is equal to variable demand at all times. So
0: is that yeah. a, a plus or a negative, would you say, the variable generation?
1: It, it's neither. It's kind of... It's a extra challenge, I would say. Um, but we have... Plenty of ways of addressing that challenge. Um, And an important kind of historical note to point out that having our current or current and kind of historic uh, fossil fuel generators, they might be dispatchable. You might say, okay, I'll just shovel some more coal into the furnace and that'll give us more power. But they also have their own limitations. They can't turn on very quickly. They take, kind of, can take up to a day or more to come up to speed because there's a lot of thermal processes in such plants that need to kind of warm up and expand and heat up, et cetera. Um, and then they often can't turn you know, operate below a certain power output, so maybe 50% of their power or, or 30% of their power there's no, they can't go below that. They can only turn off. So r-
0: ramping up and ramping down is slow for and, them.
1: Yeah, there's a, ramping up and down is slow, and there's a limit to how low they can go. Right. Um, and so you'll often hear reference to base load power. We need base load power. Well, interestingly, like the the word base load doesn't have power or a generation in it; it has load in it. And what that's a reference to is because we had to actually create more loads, particularly of the evening times when we're all sleeping, so that our coal-fired power stations could keep operating at their minimal level. Because if we didn't use power, they would have to turn off, and then they'd take half a day to turn on again, and, well, we need power, and you want your breakfast in the morning. So base load is a reference to the limitation, to the constraints of thermal generators. Not something desirable, so
0: is it an example of you know we were talking earlier about changing our thinking about yeah reconceptualizing a, a situation and and you hear you, or you read letters in the paper and people say, "Oh, we need base load generation so is that that's an outmoded concept do you think uh, it was it was
1: it's been a, a kind of um, what's the word adapted and, and used for kind of nefarious purposes. It was as a technical description. It's a description of kind of the limitations of fossil generators, of particularly of thermal generators, and therefore we needed to do something on the load side. Now, that's not a good. That's not a good situation. So we, what we did is we built a lot of street lighting. Um, but that was just to kind of burn off electricity that we just needed to give the coal plants something to oh, do overnight.
0: Hang on, run that by me again. We put in more street lights. Just to use up the power, the surplus yes, power? Yes,
1: street or we gave... No, we turn, put all our hot water, electrical resistance, hot water systems on at night. We incentivized industry. We made electricity extremely cheap overnight so that someone hopefully would use lots of it because we needed someone to use something, even if it's just to, like, waste it as a resistive kind of heater so that the coal plants wouldn't have to turn off. So that's a real constraint. And if we look to the future now and how we're... Currently operating the grid, and will it be operating it kind of in the years and decades to come? We have different constraints. We have the variability of generation, but solar and wind and other um, uh, renewables are extremely fast to change. So they their ramp rates are like extraordinarily steep. Like, like in turn,
0: fractions of a second. Or, frac- or, or, yeah,
1: fractions of a second in some instances that they can turn up and down. And so the ways that we can ensure that we still have reliability and that we always have generation, heat, well, uh, generation meaning demand, um, is that we can build a bit more solar and wind than we need. And so, we, so that we can run them in solar and wind are the cheapest form of generation that we have, cheaper than new build thermal as well. Um, and so we can just build a little bit extra and then run them at, say, 80% of their power capacity and that they have a little bit of headroom and when you turn on your kettle, they can bump up to, it's not going to take next to 1% of a solar farm, but you get my idea, so they can kind of move up a little bit. Or the other point, which I think is um, where a lot of this conversation is going and what a lot of our research is about, is then about energy storage. So if you have energy storage, then that's... A way both to like produce that extra electricity that you need, but it also gives you a useful uh, kind of uh, reservoir or a useful um, where place to send electricity if you have too much. If we had kind of, so it smooths out the flow. Supplies it when you need it, takes it up when you don't need it, and t- takes it up when you have too much as well. When you and have that's, too much. That's yeah. another thing that yeah. um, we did when we had when we needed base load pumped hydro storage like we have in the snowies is great for that. They can start to pump all their water uphill over an evening time when the coal plant can't go any lower. Okay. And now in the future what and what we're already seeing today is that energy storage like snowy like batteries, um, they then start to charge up when you have a lot of uh, energy, yep. possibly even at times when you have too much electricity that you would otherwise have to be curtailing. So
0: re- renewables are uh, sometimes called intermittent, or, and we use the word variable, but maybe a better word is flexible.
1: Yeah, I I actually wrote a uh, a piece in the Canberra Times many years ago around you know, why variable is the perfect word for them. Intermittent assumes or gives the impression that they're just going to like flake out and not turn on in <laughs> half an hour's time. That's not the case, it's just that it varies, but that variability is something that we have, for, have forecasts to kind of can look ahead and see what's happening or going to happen um, and we have ways of managing that.
0: Alright, well I, I want to drill a bit more uh, into the, the battery storage technology a little bit later because that's a whole topic on, on its own. But I want to backtrack, and I hope you don't mind me asking a, a technical question because it's something that I've been curious about. And, and you said that uh, a coal-fired power station, and I don't know about gas, but you can answer this, uh, has a minimum amount of energy that it's got to produce. So, why is that? Does it, um, it's just got a spinning turbine with a, uh, the
1: water heated from the, uh, the burning fuel, Right yeah it's a it's a combination i believe i'm not this is not strictly my expertise, but my understanding is that it would be a combination of um the kind of mechanical constraints or mechanical considerations of spinning machines, particularly in the generator um, as well as thermal processes the fact that you have a very high temperatures in these plants um and so you can't have things heating up or cooling down and particularly then expanding and contracting. Oh, so you've got steam quickly. and
0: it's superheated uh, temperature At and so
1: Temperatures on. within piping of some variety and then that piping is going to heat and con- expand and contract, et cetera. So you have kind of material and thermal constraints as well as mechanical constraints. And the interesting thing in terms of the mechanical constraints is that we've built our, the way that we operate our power system, how we keep track of whether demand and generation are in match. Actually, the the signal that we use to check that comes from the mechanical, from the physics of the mechanics of how those spinning masses spin. Is it called spinning reserve? Is that the term? Yeah, that's part of it. And it's the frequency of the power system. So we have an alternating current uh, power system. And so that alternating current, think of it as a a sine wave. um, And it has a certain frequency. And that frequency changes depending on the mismatch between the generation and demand. The only reason that it does that is because that frequency is directly a reflection of how the rate at which the generator is spinning in a, in a um, what we call synchronous, but anything that has a, a generator, a mass spinning generator. And so that spinning mass has um, inertia and has momentum. And so we rely on that momentum and that inertia to give us a little bit of extra power just for fractions of a second. If you turn on your kettle, it'll actually come from that spinning mass just for a fraction of a second until the guy with the shovel shovels in a bit of extra coal to start to Uh, produce that. So
0: renewable resources uh, like wind and solar don't have inertia like
1: that? Don't have that. So there's no... no, Which frees us from the constraints of having to Mm -hmm. run them above a certain threshold of power output. But it also incurs on us a challenge of how are we going to manage frequency instead? How are we going to manage power and uh, generation and demand? So So,
0: I opened our discussion this morning mentioning my clock, my bedside clock, right? And somehow that manages to keep the correct time. Now, I think, and please correct me, that it's using the frequency off the main's power, which is 50 hertz? 50
1: hertz, hertz, yep. Yeah, it's 50 times a second. Yep, and it can't ever get, like, it needs to be within a fraction, uh, yeah, a fraction of that amount. So um, we start to kind of alarm bells ring if it goes below 49.95 hertz or above 50.05 hertz, so it really has to be very close to It's a really to
0: tight tolerance. Yeah. And so what would happen to all the appliances in my house? I mean, the clock going out of sync, you know, I could live with that. Yeah. But if it fried
1: my computer or did damage, what would what would happen? So that's the interesting thing. If you have a really old fridge that has a mechanical motor in it, um, then it could damage that motor and it could... Um, damage your fridge and that's because the motor again has a spinning mass in it in that motor and the motor is designed for that mass to spin at 50 hertz that's why you can't get a american fridge of that era and plug it in here otherwise it's guaranteed to explode but now my fridge, and hopefully many listeners, more energy-efficient fridges, use, have an inverter in it um, that takes that AC, um, the alternating current, and turns it into a DC, a direct current to use within the, the fridge. That's the same with your phone charger, your laptop, uh, your TV. Most of your appliances now actually run off... Most, is, most of your appliances are electronics, and electronics tends to run off DC. Um, and so it has a much greater sensitivity to the frequency. There's much less impact on your your laptop charger. will kind of recognize, oh, this is 55 hertz. That's fine. I'll still turn it into DC. Uh,
0: okay. <laughs> it's not qu- exactly the same situation, but I do remember uh, I was mucking around with a, a cheap speaker, my sound system, and I put too much power into it. And what I what I believe it does is it uh, knocks the top off the sine waves. You're effectively mm. pushing a direct current into an, what should be an alternating current, uh, and uh, it's a good way to wreck your speakers.
1: Yeah, and and the so the so the situation for the the power grid is that we have a because solar and wind don't have these. There's no spinning masses. It, ironically, with wind, there is something that spins. It's the the big fan that you can see. But the way that those generators are currently configured, kind of very old wind turbines were... Um, more analogous to a spinning generator in a fossil fuel plant. But modern wind turbines will um, actually convert to DC um, so they can apply more electronics. So we don't get that frequency control, that inertia kind of for free. So instead, we have a lot of human choices. A lot of engineers have to decide how are we going to produce that sine wave instead But because it's electronics, we have a huge amount of flexibility in how we do that. And, in fact, we are now beginning to see kind of real-world demonstrations such as from some of the bigger batteries in Australia where um, services relating to frequency can be provided in a superior fashion from wind, solar, batteries, than from fossil generators, because we're not longer we no longer have the constraints of the speed at which and, that mass and is. And being. even
0: better, we're not burning stuff while we're using them,
1: and and, and we can also absolutely, like, and that's why we need to do it. But there's a really great silver lining in that we're also actually getting kind of improved ways of managing our grid from renewables.
0: All right. Well, I think uh, we. I might. Um, ask a few questions about batteries and we'll do a batteries 101 i think because our listener and including myself uh, there's some really basic things about battery let's get that under our belt and uh we'll break to a little track here on fuzzy logic with our guest dr bjorn stoneberg from the uh, anu and author of amy's balancing act uh this thing called love this thing called science which we love, of course, on two double X community radio. We're streaming online, and uh, don't forget to subscribe because it costs a lot of money to keep a station like this going. You enjoy listening, uh, go to two double FM, XXX.fm, two uh, double dot org dot au, and you can even listen back to shows, your favorite shows during the day. And we podcast our show to fuzzy logic on to xx.podbean.com and we have an article a column in the canberra times but uh, now our guest today is dr bjorn sternberg from the anu senior research fellow uh, talking about energy and uh, we're generating energy we're generating energy at a variable rate or we were saying, a flexible rate. We're using energy at a variable rate, trying to match up these flows, which are, well, they're both variable, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> and you need a buffer. You need a cache or you need somewhere to store the stuff when you've got too much of it, and then somewhere you can pick it up and use it when you want it. Absolutely. So what's uh, another word for that, uh, Bjorn, is? Uh,
1: storage. I would storage. That's the word I would use, yeah.
0: <laughs> all right so let's uh let's take our listener through battery 101 what what do we need in a battery
1: so before what we need in a battery i think what do we need in energy storage Um and the the thing i want to point out on this front is that we need to we store energy but the way in which we get that energy back um, is determined by a power rating so the, an analogy for this is that in the energy system we talk about energy the amount of work that you need to do kind of the amount of energy you need to run your fridge for a year um, that's what you get on your electricity bill it's how so much that, energy did you a, use a, a kilowatt hour for a, a kilowatt example? hour absolutely now, but then we also talk about power which is just the kilowatt part of that um, it's really just the watt part of that, kilo just means thousand so it's just the the power the watts and that's the rate at which you use electricity so that's Um, because if you want to turn your kettle on, that uses actually quite a lot of power, Um, but for a very short period of time, so not very much energy. But we need a system that can provide that power quickly so that when you flick the switch, boom, here comes the power.
0: So for a sense of scale, uh, a kettle uses 1,000 or 1,500
1: watts roughly, I think. Yeah, yeah, one, one and a half kilowatts.
0: Yeah, and the reverse cycle uh, air conditioning we have in our home is 14 or 16 kilowatts.
1: It's huge, yeah. Um, and the average Australian household, so that's all power, the average Australian household uses 20 kilowatt hours per day. Um, and the, a way of another way of thinking to have another analogy here um, about the difference between energy and power is, is the same as the difference between distance and speed. Distance is the total distance you want to cover and speed is the rate at which you're going to cover it, much like energy is the total amount of work you want to do and power is the rate at which you do that work. Um, oh, okay. So
0: let, let, let's just quickly for another uh, example on our sca- spectrum there, I'm holding up my mobile phone. Uh, what kind of power will that use in comparison to the other ones? Oh,
1: bug, bugger all. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But it's a tiny? Tiny, absolutely and tiny. And a light bulb? Also tiny, particularly the dis- difference between a different types of light bulbs is striking. It's kind of Nobel Prize winning stuff as it was in physics many years ago, but within the last 10 years, um, for the invention of the LED, the light emitting diode, um, which as a light is... Uh, orders of magnitude more efficient than a incandescent light where you're just relying on the radiative light emitted from a very tiny, yeah. electricity going through a very tiny, yeah, he- heating wire.
0: up uh, a, a filament.
1: And, uh, in, and anything yeah. to the point of heat, anything that generates heat, that's heat is almost always just a source of loss and quite mm-hmm. a large source of loss. Which is when we burn coal in a coal fired power station, we produce a lot of heat that just goes up into the atmosphere and isn't good for anything. In your car, you produce a lot of heat that's also just a waste product. And you'll see that in. Uh, that's a lot of the advantage of doing things directly in, with a, in electricity, be that an electric vehicle, be that a solar panel, be that a battery. Wow. You don't have those heat Well, a, a, a
0: petrol engine or an internal combustion engine is, what, 20-something 20, 20 percent efficient of the energy gets actually transferred. Yeah. is useful. The rest of it just goes out as heat and noise.
1: Absolutely. Which is a very short segue, is something to be very mindful if you ever get exposed to um, kind of scenarios of energy change, whether they're talking about um, primary energy, just the amount of Energy input into things, or the end use energy, because there's a huge. We need a lot of primary energy at the moment because we waste a lot of it as heat. So actually, the amount of um, end use electricity that we need um, is much, much less than that. Is yeah, let's say. A quarter to a fifth of that and so if we electrify everything, we actually need a lot less primary energy because it's just coming directly uh, so it's just well,
0: Anytime I pick up an appliance and, and I feel that it's hot I think yeah. that, that's not doing useful work for me, no. but we converted our uh, old uh, electric stove to induction cookers yeah and there's almost no heat goes into the cooker oh, itself.
1: It's beautiful and and the whole cooking with gas line is becoming a lot more problematic and starting asthma to
0: asthma and all sorts of nasty yeah things yeah are, uh, you're, not you're, clean.
1: you're cooking with gas that's giving your kids asthma yeah, it's, it's not, not clean quite, not quite the same ring to it
0: Now I have I have diverted you from uh, our conversation Ener- about energy energy
1: storage. S- energy storage <laughs> yes so we have we've covered that um, we need to store energy. But we need to be able to access that energy at a rate of power, um, and there's different balances or different mixes with which we want to do this. So, at one end of the spectrum, we generally have, and the, the, sorry, the key variable here is time. Time is the the key variable. Um, so, at one end of the spectrum, we tend to have what's called long-duration storage, deep storage, um, particularly the the postcard. Here is of uh, hydro, pumped hydro storage, where you pump water up a hill, um, store it up there as gravitational potential energy, and then it can stay there for days, weeks, months, and then at a later point you let it run back down the hill um, and at a rate depending on how much power you want.
0: So that's a large that's, capacity, slow to release, and yeah, a long
1: duration. You, you tend to have so much. You imagine, like imagine the snowy hydro plant. You can't get all of that water down the bottom of the hill in an hour if you wanted to. So you kind of the power rating of snowy, while very large, is a lot less than its energy storage capacity. Now at the other end of the spectrum, we tend to have batteries. Batteries, particularly like the ones in our phones, in our laptops, and which we're currently at least using in electric vehicles and in grid batteries, has very, very high power ratings, but are constrained in how much energy they can store. So, you often will have batteries that, if they run at their maximum power output, will use all their all of their energy storage in an hour, or sometimes even less. Now. And that you may say, oh, that doesn't sound as good as pumped hydro where you can run it at full ball for weeks on end. But they fulfil very different functions. One is there for just covering that quick instantaneous need for power when you turn your kettle on, or um, what a lot of um, the batteries that we're currently deploying in Australia, they're there for more technical reasons when there are constraints so in the electricity they're, they're grid. They're
0: like the difference between a bicycle and a truck.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. So both very important in their own way for their own purposes. The the bicycle, very quick hop on your bicycle like I did this morning, come in, short trip, but I can't carry much.
1: Yeah. Truck. Yeah. Uh, slow. Uh, well, actually, much faster than me on my bicycle. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the, the the different horses horses for courses, and the batteries we we've got now are often being deployed um, in case we have a, a rapid change in the output from renewables, or over the last few summers we've seen a lot of coal-fired power stations flood, explode, otherwise kind of go offline very quickly. And what has saved the whole power system in those instances to a large degree has been those batteries that have, within a, within a split second, literally less than a second, started to fill that gap in the supply-demand balance, now, which is a faster response than a hydro station, and it's also a faster response than a gas turbine or a, a coal-fired power station. But we we tend to
0: focus on lithium batteries, but there are other kinds of battery technologies, aren't there?
1: Yeah, and we've come to lithium batteries. Lithium is the lightest metal that we have in the the periodic table. And we've used that because we wanted batteries for our phones and for our laptops, for portable electronics. And so we wanted that portable electronics to be light. Um, And so we've invested a lot of research, a lot of development into creating lithium-based batteries. Um, And that transposes actually really well to electric vehicles, because you also want those to be light so that you can drive further. But for a lot of, for the grid, grid scale applications for home storage, for living off-grid, for any number of other kind of industrial purposes for which you need energy storage, you often don't care about space as much and you don't care about weight nearly as much as you do in a laptop or an electric vehicle. So I think now we're starting to see a lot more research into different chemistries of batteries, Um, trying to particularly replace the lithium, which is very light but also very rare um, and comes... At the moment, from only a very small number of countries around the world, so it has kind of geopolitical uh, and has environmental to it.
0: impacts huge, huge environmental
1: yeah. impacts can be a bit of a safety hazard. And depending on exactly the chemistry you use, they're very difficult to extinguish uh, lithium based fires. Um, and and they're, they're quite expensive, we're seeing, and they're expensive uh, and so well suited for vehicles let's save them for vehicles and for portable electronics and then use some other materials for uh, applications for which we don't care about weight so much. So sodium um, is a particular technology that our group is working on, but other chemistries can also be used uh, for batteries. Then there are also quite different, those are still when we talk about sodium batteries or lithium batteries, and we talk about those in vehicles or in current grid applications they almost always are still just comprised of lots and lots and lots of little batteries that are identical to those in a laptop battery. Um, but we can also store energy in other ways. We're seeing some projects that store energy in um, compressed compressing air, uh, which is, Something that has been done in a few places, not, not too many, but may have a future, um, or in gravita- other forms of gravitational energy where you lift something heavy up and then store that heavy thing up there. But maybe a particular technology that we were talking about that still gets referred to as a battery, but it's really quite different in its when you look at it um, are flow batteries. So in flow batteries, you are still storing the energy in, um, in a chemistry and the, the charge of of molecules, um, but those molecules are not confined to a little battery cell, but instead sit in big vats, in big tanks, um, and then you flow, you pump those um, different uh, charged charge Liquids back together to, to charge or discharge. So, link. is that
0: why they're called flow? Because the the, the material, the liquid inside is
1: mobile? Is that yeah, that it flows around. You pump it around now yeah. and you separate it to, I think, charge it and then you bring, or like, you pump the liquids different ways for charging and discharging. And what that allows you to do is you can make the tanks of liquids quite a lot, kind of arbitrarily large, while not changing the size of the. You know, the the pumping or the kind of the the electronics the actual generation so, part yeah so you can have a
0: reservoir offline almost separate
1: yeah so you can optimize for the energy that you need to store by the, designing the size of tanks and then you can and separately entirely separately you can optimize for the power rating of that storage um, which is very different to hide well it, you have a lot more flexibility in that with flow right. batteries than you do in batteries, batteries, or in pumped hydro. Oh,
0: so a question for you, which I think is possibly the most important question I want to ask you today, and that is how much can batteries improve? And I'm conscious, as I asked, there are multiple ways of measuring that because there's cost, size, uh, environmental impact, and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, take that wherever you like. How much better can we get with batteries?
1: I think I think it's better for what is my kind of counter question to that. Um, we will have, I think there are improvements, and I've seen evidence of there's a kind of R&D um, process and train for improving batteries for electric vehicles, um, either individual batteries or tailoring Now, I know at least one manufacturer is doing this where they'll have different chemistries of batteries in the one vehicle, where one battery is a little bit more optimized for power, which gets used for the regenerative braking. And then the other type of battery is more optimized for energy rather than power. So then that gets used for kind of the long distance driving. So we're starting to see kind of system level kind of optimization of elements there. Um, But there is room for improvement in. The power and the energy kind of uh, performance of batteries for for portable applications, I think where there is a particular opportunity is for uh, station what we call stationary storage, so applications where the batteries are going to sit still, be that on a grid or in your home mm-hmm. or whatever, but um, I think the opportunities are biggest there. Um, for improvements because that just hasn't seen the same level of interest or applications as has portable electronics and electric vehicles, which have really been the dominant um, kind of drivers of battery development for the last few decades.
0: Okay, well, let, let me be a bit more specific then. Uh, you mentioned electric vehicles and of course the big constraint in electric vehicles is well one is the the cost and the aggregate weight of all the batteries but the recharging time so the energy density of the batteries and lithium is what we're using now um, how much better can that get do you, do you have a sense of there's big opportunities waiting or are we sort of approaching those limits with that
1: I I think it again has, again comes down for, for what for what trip in the case of electric vehicles. I think we, probably in the popular imagination, are underestimating how far electric vehicles can already drive. We have most vehicles sold in Australia will be able to drive 300 plus kilometres. Many can drive more than 500 kilometres, I know. Um, and then they can charge on current charging infrastructure, they can charge um, kind of hundreds of kilometres in maybe... It's on the order, I think, of 300 kilometres in 20 minutes. Now, so 20 minutes to get a coffee and recharge 300, 300 kilometres worth of range um, is, I think, already pretty close to what most applications need. Yeah. Um, and so, again, we might then see specialisation where there might be batteries that, in the end, become optimised for taxis or other kinds of fleets that are really, really time-sensitive and need to be running on the clock and then that might have a cost premium to it Um, and other battery chemistries and other kind of vehicle designs um, that prioritise say comfort or other design features
0: Oh, So Um, is it analogous to say the uh, internal combustion uh, technology in the sense that you have a different motor for different purposes you've got the commuter, you've got the tourer you've got the truck, you've got the train
1: and so on Absolutely And, and I know now the difference between my wife's car and my car has a huge difference in uh, the fuel tank you now but also in what it costs to charge them, and to, to fuel them then um, and mine's a van so it has a very different kind of um function than does our little kind of yaris
0: okay all right let's let's take a a different tack now I and mean, we don't have time to go into much detail on this because we're running towards the end of our time here on fuzzy logic but i guess uh, Dr. Bjorn Sternberg, uh, microgrids, mm. and uh, this all fits into the the big picture. Can you give me what what, what is a microgrid? And before you answer, I was at a uh, oh, epic, you know, the showground one day, and they had a, a solar provider there, you know, with a sales display, and I asked the guy, "Oh, what about microgrids?" And he just looked blankly at me, had
1: no idea. It, yeah, it's a term that it's a term that doesn't have a. Um, I'm sure it isn't. Well, it might be in the dictionary, but I don't think it has an entirely de- defined or agreed upon definition. But it's roughly what it says on the tin. So micro, small grids, kind of a grid. So it's something to me. A grid implies more than just a household. So it's a kind of small power system, a small grid, like a neighborhood make, scale, like a neighborhood, a small town. Um, an industrial sites might run as a microgrid, um, and in the in the work that we're doing down in the Yorubadala on Yuan country, um, on kind of between Bateman South, Bateman South to the Tilba 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 and Central Tilba, um, we've got a project there called Surf, um, which is looking at the suitability and the feasibility of microgrids to providing resilience to those communities. Um, and so there we are looking at. Kind of microgrids that service communities on the scale of a couple of hundred up to kind of one or two thousand people. Mm-hmm. Now, one or two thousand people will kind of be pushing it, and may only have a microgrid that services some fraction of them. But a microgrid, then, kind of once you understand that it's just a, a small grid, you then have all of the the challenges and opportunities and will be involving all of the technologies that we've been speaking about um, with the key kind of technical crux at least being about managing the variability because now you have less people to kind of average your demand across and you have less variability in – less – Geographic diversity in where you're getting power from in a microgrid, you can't kind of. So it get, does, does it? Not, it doesn't
0: replace the the main grid, does it? Or is, does it something? Yeah. Or, so, or?
1: so historically, microgrids have been standalone things, um, and have particularly been a kind of technology or a solution that's been used by the military and by mine at mine sites in kind of remote locations. locations. Right. What we're interested in on the south coast is what we're calling grid, or what is referred to as grid-tied microgrids. So imagine a small community, let's say Congo, um, that has a couple hundred people in it, and for the vast majority of the vast majority of years, they just operate, they just connect to the grid. Nothing changes about their electricity supply, which allows them to. Uh, get clean electricity from South Australian wind farms when it's windy there and it's not sunny in Congo or from Queensland solar when it's sunny in Queensland but not in Congo. So you kind of get all the advantages of having a national grid. But then during a... When when the community is cut off from the, the main grid, say through a bushfire or similar... Then the microgrid kicks in and gives them the opportunity to run as their own islanded kind of little grid.
0: Ah, that's why you said resilience earlier. Yes, right. and is there a sense of community to this as well? Is that part? Yeah.
1: Of- so, so as we kind of started the at the top of the show, there are kind of some technological challenges to this, but there are far far more human challenges and choices to be made so how the community engages with that um, kind of what regulatory frameworks get used now um, is kind of where a lot of our research is, is focused but i think maybe for the listeners what's interesting is that in a microgrid the amount of generation that you have power generation the amount of energy storage that you have is also going to be relatively micro compared to a national grid yeah. and so if in a kind of disaster situation, the community is cut off from the national grid, is running as a microgrid, it really is going to, people are gonna have to use less electricity if they want to have electricity an electricity supply for multiple days. Otherwise, just simply the amount of battery storage that we can put into those communities, the amount of rooftop space that there is for solar or even a solar farm. All right, we,
0: um, I'll have to uh, cut you short there, Bjorn, because we're out, out of time. and out of time. I'm sorry we didn't have more time to discuss microgrids because uh, I think it's an interesting conversation and we're going to be seeing more of them. Now, just a quick heads up that uh, today's column in the Canberra Times and Australian Community Media regional papers. Uh, I muse on should we worry about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And Bjorn, I hope you can write us a column uh, for us. I I will be, yes, absolutely. That would be great. And I've got to go. (laughs) Our guest today (laughs) Bjorn uh, Sternberg from the ANU. And uh, that's it. Thanks for having me. Good on you. Catch you later.